Celebrate the launch of the DSR Spy Show featuring Mark Polymeropoulos by becoming a member. Members receive bonus content, an ad-free listening experience, the DSR Daily Brief newsletter, an invitation to participate in the DSR Slack community, and more. Through Memorial Day, listeners of Mark's show can receive 50% off our regular membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code MARK, M-A-R-C-P. That's thedsrnetwork.com and code MARK, P. Thank you for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of DSR, this being DSR's spy show with Mark Polymeropoulos, uh, who I am delighted to have here as a co-host. I'm David Rothkopf, and I'm in Washington, D.C. Mark, who has been traveling the country. Where are you, Mark? I am back in uh, Northern Virginia. I survived mm-hmm. my trip to Florida. Uh, well, that's that's no small thing. You've been to some dangerous places in your career. That's uh, that's one that I, th- I think recently was just put on a no travel list by the NAACP. This th- like in the past couple of days, um, we are also joined uh, and delighted to be joined by Tracy Walder. She is a former CIA officer and FBI special agent. Uh, she is also the author of a book that came out a couple of years ago called The Unexpected Spy, which is a great book, and I'm glad to have this chance to meet you because I thought it was a terrific. Um, a terrific story, well told. Um, and I'm always a bit surprised that so many stories about the intelligence world are so boring, and yours wasn't. Why? Why are they? Why are you guys so boring, Mark and Tracy? I mean, what's what? You know, it sounds like it's interesting. People make interesting movies about it, and TV shows, and and yet, you know, I listen to podcasts and I, I listen to some of your colleagues, and it's like. Explain that. Explain it. You're not. You're not. Your book was great. Mark, you too. You know, you guys aren't. But what is it? Are people just, you know, inclined to downplay everything? I don't. I, I, well, thank you for having me, David and Mark. I Yes and no. So when I wrote my book, I did a ton of research. I think I wrote, read like almost every book out there, right, that had been written by a former person, you know, within the CIA and all kinds of different roles. And some of them, to your point, yes, were boring. But the ones that I think struck a chord more with me were actually like the imperfect ones, if that makes any sense. I think sometimes when you're reading a lot of the books or a lot of the stories, we need to like put ourselves out there as being superheroes or perfect. And and that's like, that's not life, I guess. Is part of it. And I really wanted my book to read like a narrative. But I also think too, and I don't know what Mark thinks about this, but it, it's not as sexy as it is in movies, right? Like, I mean, I had a cubicle in the CIA. You know, it's it's it's, it's not when I was wasn't overseas. I had a cubicle. It was right? a high speed cubicle. Yeah, it, it's 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 not it's not as sexy as I guess people would like it to be. I don't know. Mark can agree or disagree. I don't know. 
No, I mean, so, you know, one of the things about the, the espionage business is you have, you know, hours of sitting around waiting, doing a lot of nothing combined with a couple of sheer moments of terror. You know, if you're about to you know, roll up on an agent meeting um, and you want to you know, obviously you have to do a surveillance detection route. Um, and then, it, you know, so so it can't it cannot be portrayed accurately in, in Hollywood. That's not perfect. That's not that's not possible. And then, of course, the things that we're really good at are things like typing. I mean, I always said to people like, did you carry a gun? I said, no, but I had a laptop. Um, because as you write up a, a meeting with an agent, I, I mean, if you don't write it up, it didn't happen. You know, if it's intelligence report can't get to the analysts back home who get it to policymakers, David, like yourself when you were uh, in government. So, you know, typing was a, was a hell of a skill. But I think one thing that what what I thought was uh, was was great about Tracy's book, what's great about Tracy, and it's it's, it's awesome to have her on here today. And it's and it's and, and I do something far less successfully as as, as she does, but it's. Um, and, and, and what, what I wrote and, and kind of in, in, in talking in the media, but it's the notion of being humble, um, you know, and so as an intelligence officer and same thing, I'm sure as law enforcement, you have to have a sense of humility. Um, and if you can get that, if you can have that come through in a book or in a, in a TV appearance, you know, it's not only is it much more endearing, it's actually authentic. And so I think that's where Tracy does a, a great job as well. And she, her background is just fantastic. I mean, um, whether it's you know her careers in operations in the operations director of CIA, then as a special agent, now as a uh, as a as a teacher and an educator, you know, living in Texas, which is kind of ground zero for a lot of kind of culture and political wars, um, we could not have a better guest on today. So, Tracy, thanks for being here. Well, thank you, guys. Yeah, I, and I I thought the the great thing about the book and the great thing about frankly a lot of the appearances I've seen you do is. That it's human stories told by human being, you know, and those that that's what we want, you know. We're 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 programmed, I think, as people to learn from storytelling, um, but you got to tell the stories, and a lot of times we we shy away from that. Um, let me let me ask a, f- a first question, and I know Mark Mark will have a follow up uh, on this uh, because you've been candid about sharing some of your experiences in the. Uh, the world of both the agency and the bureau, and I want to get to some of some of the ones you've talked about in the past. But in the news recently, we've just seen, you know, some FBI agents who were tied up in January sixth, um, and we've we've also seen stories of folks in the Secret Service who seemed like they were they had a thumb on the scale. They were not just objective folks doing their jobs, but they were part of the extreme right. And then I noticed just a couple days ago that the Department of Defense has decided to stop its program to weed out white supremacists in the military Um, because it was offending the people on the right, uh, not surprisingly, who thought the military was getting too woke. But it seems to be, you know, the Former, I mean, the current director of the FBI has said that the greatest terror threat in the U.S. right now comes from the uh, you know right-wing extremists in the U.S. And if they, you know, I mean, you can only imagine if you know twenty years ago somebody said the FBI and the CIA and the Secret Service are infiltrated with people who support Al Qaeda. It would it would have been a national scandal, 
But here we are like, oh, you know, we better not ask people about this. I'm just wondering what your view is. Well, that's a great question. Um, And it's interesting. And I know Mark did this too. When I worked at CIA, I worked under two different political parties, right? Different administrations, different presidents, all of that. And I never saw, obviously, the polarization that, you know, we have today. I, I would actually argue it probably moved me more to the middle in terms of some, not all, but some of my political beliefs. And I'm not sure that that's a bad thing, right? You know, being able to see two different perspectives is probably a good thing, particularly in intelligence gathering. But I think the core of the problem, and I hope this isn't too blunt or too offensive, is that we are not treating domestic terrorists or the domestic threat, right, as a national security issue, because it is a national security issue. National security is outside the United States and inside the United States. And we have this really big problem with labeling people that look like us (laughs) as as terrorists. But the reality is, is their actions are terroristic. And that is what they're doing. We don't even have a federal charging statute for domestic terrorism. We cannot federally charge someone with domestic terrorism. And I think that is a huge problem. Different states can clearly, but that's a big problem in and of itself, because as a country, we're refusing to recognize that sometimes, I guess, in the words of Taylor Swift, I'm the problem. It's me. Right. (laughs) You know, when we don't want to see ourselves as being part of the problem. But if we don't start seeing ourselves as being part of the problem, we're going to end up with a a massive, I think, attack, which I think we've already seen sort of little ones in terms of trying to overturn democracy. And even some of these shootings. Right. We had the one just down the street for me in in Allen, Texas. Right. With um, that individual. And he had a lot of white supremacist leanings. But we are not classifying any of these individuals as domestic terrorists, which really, in my opinion, um, it hurts our collection capabilities in terms of being able to be proactive in how we collect on them and how we maybe hear, I guess, the infamous words chatter, right, in terms of the attacks that they are going to commit. It really does hurt our capabilities because we can't label them um, as such. There's not even a domestic terrorist um, watch list. There was a one when I was at the FBI, and there's still not one now. And that's that's problematic, too. So sorry for the long answer. Great, great answer. I know Mark, by the way, is a big Swifty and was really glad with the Taylor Swift reference. I've seen Taylor Swift in concert. Me too. I have gone. I Me have. too. It was fabulous. My uh, seven-year-old is a big Swifty, and so we 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 did go. We did go. So what, one of the things, Tracy, you know, that, that I find, and, and definitely want your comments on this, you know, the idea that the FBI is woke. You know, of course, there's there's those on the right. Um, uh, there's all these congressional hearings on this now. There's this, you know, weaponization of uh, of government committee. But the, the notion of the FBI being some kind of bastion of left wing liberalism, I find hilarious only in the sense of the FBI agents that I knew, you know, wore suits on the weekend. I'm joking, sort of. It is the most conservative organization on the planet. And the idea that it's some kind of, you know, you know, uh, uh, lefty cabal there, I find utterly ludicrous. And so, you know, I just, I just scratch my head at this. Um, uh, but it, this narrative has really taken hold in the country. And I've had friends of mine and I have a whole bunch of, you know, friends who are uh, uh, on the right and, and certainly support the former president Trump, which I find uh, astounding, but I, you can't, you can't escape that. Uh, but they say to me that, you know, the quote that they would say, I will never trust anything from the FBI again, because, um, uh, because they are so woke. And I just sit there. And, and so this is, this is now an issue not that there's reality towards it, 
but that it, it is it is the, the uh, part of the thought process of many on the right. And so, kind of your your comments on that, and particularly what you saw at your time uh, at the FBI. I don't know if you wore a suit on the weekend or not, but um, certainly wasn't. Uh, they weren't going to Grateful Dead concerts. <laughs> Look, I mean, I will. I found that the FBI, at least during my my time there, if anything, skewed a bit more conservative, but it wasn't polarized. If that if that makes any sense, I would not say that it was hyper conservative, if you will. Law enforcement in general skews conservative, but that's because of some of the core beliefs, right? That those those entities have tend to match. But I'm not even sure that they match anymore, to be quite quite honest with you, because you got right almost in a way saying defund law enforcement because they want the FBI abolished. <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't know any more of those jive, but m- the vast majority of the agents, in my opinion, skewed conservative. Not all of them, right? You know, I had some that were on the liberal, some that were in the middle, but it wasn't sort of this, you know, hyper conservatism um, th- that we see. But I think, you know, when you are weaponizing the FBI, when you are doing things like or weaponizing the CIA, quite frankly, and I've said this before, I wrote an article on it. This puts national security at risk as well, because you are sending a message to our entities, to our enemies, excuse me, that, hey, we aren't organized right now. We are cohesive in how we're going to respond to you and how we're going to collect on you, whether that's from a law enforcement perspective of collection or that's from an intelligence perspective of collection. And you are basically telling them this is a prime time for, for y'all to attack because we aren't feeding information to the right entities. And I think that that in and of itself, and that's something that isn't being discussed as much, um, is highly problematic. So when you see folks like Jim Jordan, right, you know, going out there and, and parading all of this around um, in those hearings, you really are sending a message to entities, um, to enemies that we shouldn't, that now is the time because we are not a cohesive unit. And that's problematic. Yeah. And, and in fact, we saw Jim Jordan when somebody confronted him with his hearings last week and said two of these FBI agents um, not only were discredited by an FBI investigation, but they were on the payroll of Cash Patel, um, who was kind of a uh, part of the core of the effort to pervert the FBI and the CIA under Trump with Rick Grinnell and some of these others. Um, uh, he said, well, they got to earn a living. You know, I mean, that was, that was, that was Jim Jordan's bizarre answer. But, you know, it does touch upon something else that is coming up a lot. And that is under Trump, he came into office with a deep skepticism of the agency. Um, and, uh, uh, ultimately, you know, within moments later of the FBI and Comey and so forth. Um, and, <clears throat> Famously, in 2018, stood next to Putin and said, "No, I, I trust Putin more than I trust the agency." Um, and he actually began to act on that, where he tried to put his own people inside these agencies um, as a way to ensure that, you know, they were staying on side with him uh, and prioritizing personal loyalty over loyalty to the country. All of a sudden, he is the leading candidate for president of the United States on the Republican Party. There is a very realistic possibility that in 18 months, we could be back to having, you know, the guy in charge of the FBI 
and the CIA being somebody who said, let's suspend the Constitution. I want to put a guy like Rick Grinnell in head of, as the head of intelligence. I want Cash Patel in there. He's part of the wing of the party that's like shut down the FBI. Without getting into the politics of it, how do you think that feels to your former colleagues? Uh, in 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 the agency or in the bureau. We also can't forget my pillow guy as well. I feel like he might bring him in. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, no. You could th- having Mike Lindell as the you know ODNI. That would be a, a great stroke. Wouldn't it? I I can't look. I, I do talk to some of my former colleagues, and I don't want to you know share like their thoughts because I always want to be respective, respectful of them, and you know how they feel, but. I cannot even begin to fathom, and I'm sure Mark can add to this as well, how undermined they must feel. It's sort of this idea of like, what was it all for? What, why did, why did we do this? Why did we go to Iraq, Afghanistan? You know, all these places that were really tough. Uh, You know, why did we suffer from PTSD? Why did we do all of these things? Because we all, and I, and Mark, absolutely, we all put country over self. All of us did, at least everyone I know did. Um, and so it becomes for some of those when you have the person who is directing your collection, right? Who's basically tasking you with what they think is most important is the president of the United States who doesn't think that you have a right to exist as an organization. I cannot even imagine. And from what I understand is there's been some turnover because people don't want to have allegiance to Trump and don't necessarily want to work for him. But I cannot even imagine how that feels to have someone who's basically using you to assuage their own paranoia, because that's really what he's doing. Um, And changing the mission of the agency that you joined. And I I think that's got to be incredibly frustrating. I'm sure you have a question, Mark, which I'd love to hear, but I'd be interested in your view on this, too. Sure, David. You know, I think a lot about this because, you know, uh, again, I, you know, I served under four different presidents. Um, I voted across party lines for president. I've been very open in, in saying that, but I certainly was not a, a fan of, the, of, of President Trump. A lot of it uh, due to his kind of odd affinity um, for Russia and for, for Vladimir Putin. But I think on a second Trump term, um, uh, the biggest concern I have is that the adults in the room, uh, uh, they no longer exist. So uh, individuals um, who, you know, whether whether you kind of agree with their decision to serve in national security positions or not, but the, the James Mattis uh, of the world um, or Gina Haspel uh, or John Kelly, you know, there's no chance anyone like that is going to come back into a second Trump term because everything Trump touches dies. And so you, you really have a, a, a situation in which crazy town would ensue. And I don't know, you know, uh, the, you know, I, and I worry about even, you know, the future viability of organizations like the FBI uh, and the CIA. How does it operate um, when you have truly wildly partisan uh, individuals coming in? You know, the adults are gone. And so that leads to a whole other issue that I was kind of thinking about this morning. I think it was kind of floating around social media is those adults in the room never really uh, spoke up. And I think that's the problem. And this is not, the, you know, uh, the, you know, the, you know, Biden versus DeSantis race. Um, this isn't kind of a regular political. Race. This is if Trump is the nominee, and if Trump is the nominee, you know the James Madisons of the world and others really do have to, uh, you know, uh, come out um, and, and talk about what it was like uh, uh, serving this man, and also the dangers for the future. Um, because I think that that you know there there are there are much bigger issues in terms of policy disputes 
Um, this is kind of the future viability of our national security institutions. Um, and as Tracy alluded to before, look, you know, our enemies are watching. Um, nothing could be better for Russia, uh, uh, for example, or China, uh, uh, or China calling it a competitor rather than perhaps an enemy. But nothing could be better than to watch this political dysfunction, which would be, a, the, the you know, Trump being the nominee. Yeah, you know, it, br- it brings up another bit from the news. Um uh, and that is that Putin has put out an enemies list. And Putin's enemies list was really weird because Putin's enemies list was a bunch of people who had nothing to do with Russia. There were a bunch of people on the enemies list, Alvin Bragg, Joe Scarborough, you know, some, some characters like this that, that just had been mean to Trump. And, you know, we have a bunch of people on the right, I mean, for example, to pick up on Mark's point, uh, Tracy, Trump has said Mike Flynn is going to have a place in his in his administration. Mike Flynn is on, on the regular now, going out there, going, "This war has got to end." Both sides in it, you know, you know, you know, essentially offering Russian talking points. Now, you know. You know, back in the olden days when both of you were in the agency, sorry, but, you know, a while back, um, that we kind of knew who the enemies were. Now you've got a political faction in the United States, not a small one, a big one, that isn't so sure Russia's an enemy. And another one that goes, uh, no, they're the single biggest immediate threat that we face. Uh, you know, China may be long run, but right now Russia, Ukraine, et cetera. Um, that's new. Also, we 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 typically at least are able to get both parties to agree on who the ones who are out trying to hurt us are. Um, how how do you think that affects things in terms of what we do overseas via the agencies you're familiar with, Tracy? Well, I think, and to echo Mark's point, I have voted for both political parties. I really have. Um, I'm obviously like Mark. I'm not a Trump fan, um, but. I, I think in terms of, of the messaging that it sends to to our enemies, the, the, the biggest issue that I'm seeing is that it all boils down to tasking. And so, Mark, you can correct me if, if you disagree with this, but obviously at the agency, our tasking and what we collect on and what is prioritized that really does come from the executive, obviously from the director too, and and some other places. But that becomes problematic because what I could see happening, right? If Trump wins and the fact that he hasn't he doesn't view Russia as an enemy, but rather as a friend, is the resources that we need um, to do that tasking, to gather that intelligence, to have that as an area of focus, may be significantly diminished. And I always have abided by the idea of keep your friends close, but your enemies closer, right? And so the problem is, is if we don't view Russia as an enemy per se, and we stop um, tasking um, on Russia, we stop, we limit our collecting on Russia, they now have devolved into the wild, wild west in terms of intelligence. And so now we could potentially, if Trump wins, have this four-year black hole right, of intelligence and gathering on Russia. And that is a big problem um, because we don't, a lot can happen in 10 days. A lot can happen in four years. And I, the, the thing that I, I guess I'm looking at kind of from a top view is that 
it boils down to tasking. And I am worried that he's going to collect on what he wants to collect on, which is very self-serving typically to feed whatever his paranoia is. I think it all boils down to paranoia, right? And so I think that's what I, I, I view that as the biggest issue. You know, and it goes right back to what I said before about adults in the room. So, you know, I, I you know, whether you like John Bolton or not, um, he's a very experienced national security and national security advisor under Trump and a Russia hawk. And and, you know, the taskings we received from the NSC, we did a lot of things to counter Russia. I don't know if he actually told Trump if he if he was doing any of this stuff. Um, and so, you know, and it goes, David, you've talked about this a lot, you know, the, the we the 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 moniker, the deep state. Well, in fact, the deep state, in essence, you know, helped save America uh, during the, the Trump years because there were adults in the room who, and, and you know, uh, uh, and pursued, um, uh, you know, policies. And as, as, as Tracy had said, you know, we, you know, we, we collected against uh, uh, our enemies, regardless of whether Trump had this bizarre affinity for, for Putin. But you have no John Bolton uh, in, in Trump, too, in the second term. So that certainly is a... a, a I think of, of huge concern to me. Can I, can we, can we, I, there's, there's a, there's a topic though that I want to kind of switch to that I think um, has been in the news uh, quite a bit, but is, but is you know, certainly very important. Um, and, and Tracy, you and I have talked about it a, a bit offline, but um, there was an announcement that the CIA made uh, about a week or so ago um, that they were uh, putting into place um, uh, some additional officials doing some things, tweaking procedures uh, in terms of recent uh, issues of sexual harassment uh, at the agency. And I think that, you know, that was that, that appeared in the press. Um, I think a lot of us former officers were asked about this, um, but it does go to a, a, a kind of a, and, and one one key point on this, too. I think, you know, Bill Burns, the CIA director, was given some credit for kind of pushing forward these reforms. But I think what missed the point was that there were a lot of brave female officers who actually came forward um, and went to the Hill. Um, but just the overall issue in terms of, of, of sexual harassment at, at the agency, I think, is something that, um, you know, did need to be uh, addressed. And I, I'm curious as your thoughts, both, of course, as a as a veteran of the agency and of, of the FBI as well, and what you experienced at the Bureau, too. Sure. So I'm just I can only first of all, I want to caveat and say I can only speak from my own lived experience. Right. Every woman at any of these institutions has their own set of experiences. And I believe them all, whether their experiences were good or bad, we're all, we all lived different lives, right? At these organizations. So I, I do want to caveat that. Um, for me at the CIA, and I, I know Mark, you, you, I think know who my division chief was. Um, I did not have any issues, um, you know, regarding sexual harassment and, and and how I was treated. I worked for all males. Um, all of my my division chiefs and group chiefs were, were all males. I never I never had um one. And I think at the head of at the head of see I worked for Hank Crumpton and um Jose Rodriguez who are personalities and I, I never had any issues. But that's just me. Um, my other uh, chiefs who I, I can't say their name they were amazing um, as well. I was afforded every opportunity that the males were. Uh, I, I never had any issues. In a way, though, it was strange because it didn't prepare me for the FBI um, because I felt that I would have that same experience. The idea of sexual harassment never like entered my head because I had been in so many situations where I was the only female and was treated without issues. Um, I just assumed, why would this 
be any different um, at the FBI. And obviously, if you've read my book, it was vastly different. But part of the difference, I do wonder, too, um, if it had to do with <laughs> the fact that the CIA and FBI, particularly at that time, like hated each other, right? And so I think some of that was probably taken out on me um, personally as well. But I also think if we look at the gathering of intelligence versus law enforcement, one is associated much more um, with male dominance in our culture, right? Like, look at, at the FBI, you know, women couldn't be female agents until 1971, 1972-ish. That's not that long ago. I was born in the 70s. And so that is an issue in and of itself, right? When you didn't have that long of a history. Um, I experienced pretty bad um, sexual harassment uh, when I was there. And it, it really was so bad that ultimately... I made a decision to leave. I graduated Quantico. I went to my field office, did my job, um, but I just couldn't take it anymore. And I think my biggest issue when we see all of this stuff, right, that's happening with Jim Jordan and these panels and this whistleblower stuff and the weaponization of the FBI, it really becomes problematic for people like myself and other women um, because there is um, not, I am not part of this, but there is a gender discrimination lawsuit kind of weaving its way right now from back from 2019, 2020. And it's over 100 women who have come forward. Um, but the problem is, is it detracts from all of that. And we can never get movement um, in terms of dealing with those things, just like those brave women at CIA who came forward and went to the Hill um, and had their claims listened to. These women at the FBI really don't stand a chance right now because of everything that's going on um, that's politically motivated. And that makes me obviously very upset. Now, it's interesting also in the context that some of the pushback from the right at the moment against wokeism is a pushback against discussing these things, which includes, by the way, sexual harassment in the military, which is a also a deeply serious issue. Uh, simultaneously, I would note the White House just announced that they're looking at eliminating using prior pay as a criterion determining what to pay people because women have been underpaid historically. And so if you use prior pay as a way of determining what somebody's getting paid, it's going to perpetuate that. And so they're trying, you know, in their in their small ways to change it. This is the moment in the podcast when we um, say thanks to everybody in the general public who's been listening and say, isn't this a good discussion? And if you want to listen to the whole thing, you should become a member. Go to the DSRnetwork.com, click on membership, sign up every week. You will get the full podcast from all of the podcasts that we're doing. And that's lots right at the moment. Uh, and it will be more in the future. So uh, for the general public, we say bye-bye. Thanks. Come back soon. For our members, we say standby. We'll be back in a moment. <laughs>